Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of A Better Conversation. This is episode six. I'm Gus Simpson, production director here at Real Life, sitting across the table from the one and only Aaron Couch. How's it going today, Aaron? It's going good. Super excited to uh, take a breather with this episode. Yes, yes, me too. Uh, we realized that these last few episodes, we've been kind of going deeper and deeper and heavier and heavier on the topic. And we're like, you know what? It's, it's time to come up for air, right? <laughs> yeah, we were. <laughs> I was just talking before we started recording about when we listening to the to the podcast on suicide it just even our voices were just heavy <laughs> yeah yeah so we figured it was time to uh, switch gears a bit come up for air um, and uh, I'm really excited about today's topic uh, probably because it was it was my suggestion um, but uh, on episode one you know we we had Brad Gray on we talked about biblical context we threw around words like contextual hermeneutic um, we talked about you know it's, it's just kind of a, almost a buzzword around real life sometimes uh, but I don't know if we always really talk about what that means or why it's so important. Um, most people don't even know what a hermeneutic even is. So uh, I, I suggested to Aaron, hey, let's talk about this. Let's uh, let's kind of talk about why context matters. Yeah, so I would, uh, just to open up the conversation, contextual hermeneutic is a big churchy word, big academic word. Essentially what it means is we're wrestling with the question of why is it good to study the Bible in context? And that's a really big Deal. It's a it's a great question. Um, I loved what Brad said in our um, interview of him, and he said it again during the weekend seminar. No one likes to be taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that was like, yes, that is such a good point to make. Um, when we when we misrepresent what somebody says. Uh, nobody likes that, and I and I'm sure that the the writers of the Bible don't <laughs> like it any more than we do. Uh, Paul's like, "What the heck, guys? Come on!" Yeah, that's not what I meant at all. Um, so um, here's here's an interesting thing. Like when I went to Bible college, uh, there was a four step process of hermeneutic. Hermeneutic basically is these are the rules by which I interpret the scripture. And there's there's more to the laws of hermeneutics, but it basically a biblical interpretation process is you read the passage. And then um, step two is you deduce the timeless truths that are contained within the text. And so um, I'm going to read the passage over several times. Then I'm going to kind of decide what the passage is trying to say. Then step three is I'm going to do word study work. And then step four is I'm going to apply that to the context of what was going on around the passage. So, for example, if I'm reading a passage out of Ephesians 5 and I'm reading about um, husbands and wives and Christ and the church and this profound mystery and all this stuff, I'm going to decide what that says, then I'm going to do my word study work, and then I'm going to apply that to what was going on in Ephesus. And the problem with that is I've already decided what it means before I ever know anything about the world it was spoken into. I'm putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. And it's like, when you say it that way, it's like, that doesn't make any sense, but that's actually how Westerners think. It's not even a, it's not even a uncommon, we, we, interpret a lot of things that way, yeah. and we bring our interpretation reality to the scriptures. Yeah, well, I think it's pretty common. Just, just you know, you, you read the words and you take the language at face value. I mean, that's the way we've been we've been taught in school for yep, you know, yep, our and, whole lives. And so, think considering things um, from a contextual perspective. Um, number one, what we want to do is learn everything that we can about the context, and what we'll find is that that radically shapes. That context before we ever read the passage, it shapes the topics that are even being talked about. Then we want to read the passage, 
Then we want to do the word study work, and then we want to deduce the timeless truths at the end, after all the work has been done. Um, Stated another way, I would say it this way, and I say it this way a lot, um, we cannot know what the Bible means for us until we know what it means for them. That's really good. So the people who wrote the Bible, um, they just didn't think the way we think. Uh, what, What a lot of people will do with the Bible today in the church is they assume that uh, the Bible was written to people who are pretty much 21st century Americans, no. and um, they weren't. They they had radically different worldviews. They, they they saw the world differently. They they reasoned the world differently, um, and and that's important for us to understand because that influences not only what they're saying but why they're saying it. And those assumptions. Um, are written into the text, and what I mean by that is when the when the biblical writers wrote, they wrote with with the assumption that you would know culturally what was going on around that and be able to deduce what they how they were trying to apply that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some big differences um, between Eastern and Western thought. And and here's what I want to preface that by saying: so we as Americans, we are Western thinkers, and basically what that means is that we think Greek. Mm-hmm. Which is very rational, <laughs> very measured. rational, chronological, linear yeah. boxes, charts, graphs, all that mm. stuff. Um, it's it's a bifurcated world, um, single point truth, and and here's the deal: it's not wrong to think that way. Um, th- and that's important for us to keep kind of on the forefront. It's yeah. not bad yeah. to think I, that way. Yeah, because I think, you know, I haven't been in real life, you know, like, I'll catch, you know, like, it, it comes up in the home group a lot with, oh, that's so, like, Greek or so Western, and you, like, almost feel like a little dirty inside for thinking <laughs> that way, you know? Dirty. Yeah, that's funny. So, the here's where it comes from. Basically, um, when Alexander the Great decided to conquer the world, his goal was to make the world Greece, and he did. <laughs> It worked, and we mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. If you consider who is the greatest evangelist of all time, Alexander the Great wins that bid. He promoted his his gospel, and we are still part of it at some level. And so, anyway, uh, I don't want to make too much out of that, but just to make sure that we understand that we're Greek thinkers, and that's not wrong. The problem is that the Bible was written by people who weren't Greek mm-hmm. thinkers. They were they're Eastern thinkers. Uh, and the Jewish way of processing information is different. And, and I'll give you some examples. Um, how we view time is different. Uh, mm. For for a Greek, everything is about the order of events. It's about chronology and getting the order of events correct. And so we really wrestle when we read the Bible because for a Jewish thinker, they don't they're not concerned about chronology. They're concerned about the point they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. And so they will actually move stories around. If you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, for example, they'll move those stories around. And so one story, Isaac's a baby, and then he's carrying wood up the hill, and the next, and then the next story, it, you know, it's just, there's all these weird, like, it's all out of order. Yeah, yeah, which which I think is why... Sometimes when people look at the Bible, they're like, well, it's it's obviously wrong because they, you, this doesn't even make sense. Right, right. Because it's not chronologically correct. Well, it's not wrong when we pull back and go, wait a minute, the people who wrote it, what were they thinking? Mm-hmm. How would they have used this information? And so once you start to see it from that way, whole new worlds um, open up. Um, we view numbers differently. And in the Western world, we view numbers quantitatively. Um, in the Jewish world, they view numbers qualitatively. And so mm. each number doesn't just represent an amount, it represents a, an idea or a quality. Um, uh, there's 
gosh, tons and tons and tons of examples of that. The um, the fact that Solomon took a, a, a census, he took a tax, and he he collected six hundred and sixty six talents. Um, well, did he actually? Com- is that the actual amount, the literal amount? Then how much money is that? Um, or is the Bible trying to tell us that the way in which he did it was evil? Mm. Um, the five loaves and the two fish and the 12 basketfuls left over after feeding 5,000 people, all those numbers were like, man, that's interesting. Those That kid had five loaves of bread and two fish. He needs to go on the Atkins diet. Uh, <laughs> but that's like, it's, we're missing the point completely. There, all those numbers have meaning. And mm. what you can do with that is make too much out of it, and then it becomes Kabbalism, which... It's totally, it's all mystical and disconnected. Um, But those numbers have qualitative meanings. Um, How we view God in his nature is totally different. Uh, Unpack that a bit. Yeah, so so when I ask a person from American church, God is, finish the sentence, God is, um, they'll say things like God is omnipotent, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Yeah, he's omnipresent. All all the omnis. He's all, he is omni and then some. Um, but we use God is love, God is grace, God is forget, and all those things are true. It's just that it's rooted in an abstract idea. Mm. In the Jewish world, they would say something like this: God is a rock, God is shade in the desert. Mm. These concrete ideas, and neither one is right or wrong. They're both true. What I like about thinking about things from an Eastern perspective in this particular regard is this. If God is omniscient, if he's all-powerful, omnipotent, and all-knowing, then what happens is when something happens in the world that I don't understand how an all-knowing, all-powerful God could let that happen. Um, For example, children are born to abusive parents. Well, people that would be loving parents can't have kids. Like, that bothers me. Mm -hmm. How can an all-knowing, all-powerful God do that? Now I have to defend an abstract idea. Hmm. And that's really, really hard to do um, because we're talking in the world of philosophy, which never has an anchor. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the flip side is, if God is a rock, then when bad things happen, he's still an anchor for my soul. He's still a rock. He's still hmm. a, a place that I can land on, a place that I can hold to. So I don't have to defend the bad thing in view of this abstract idea of God. I can say in the midst of all circumstances, good or bad, God is still this thing. Mm. So those are the kind of things that for me, like it's not right or wrong, but it is helpful at times to understand yeah. it both ways. Well, that's the reason that like art and poetry and, and music is so powerful because it takes these, you know, these ideas and it gives them you know, a way of talking about it that connects with us differently. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It brings brings a new angle onto those things. Um, how we view the universe at just fundamentally is different and man's role in it. For for a Western mind, we begin with the self. We have an egocentric view of the universe. And so we begin with the self and everything then ripples out. And the implication is um, my primary function is to care for me first and foremost. And then out of that um, the universe is chaos, and therefore my job to is to control it mm-hmm. so that I can predict it or defend myself from it. <clears throat> yeah, and so then my I because of that. I, I mean, here's a simple implication: because of that, I take care of myself first before I help anybody else. Mm-hmm. Which, when we when we come at Christianity from that perspective, it feels like what the Bible is saying is that we need to let that piece go, and that just doesn't compute with our what's called our metaphysic, how we understand the universe to function. Mm. 
from the conversely, from a Jewish perspective, um, they believe that the universe is fundamentally ordered. First and foremost, it's ordered by a God who is good and who has our best interest at, at heart. Therefore, we function in community before we protect ourselves. This is the idea of hospitality, um, which is even in, in non-biblical Middle Eastern cultures like Islam, uh, the Bedouin culture, uh, hospitality is absolutely core. Um, I, the, the movie um, Lone Survivor, mm-hmm. uh, where the guy, he, he's a uh, Navy SEAL, loses his entire unit. He gets uh, taken in by an Islamic village, and they're, they're the enemy. But because they brought him in under their protection, many of their village died protecting one of their enemy because this is the role of hospitality. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we protect the community first before we protect ourselves. It's this understanding that's rooted in God's in control, God understands and has ordered the universe, and He's fundamentally good. And, and we don't even, in the Western world, we don't have a frame of reference for that. Yeah, like, that's super foreign, Yeah, both, both literally and metaphorically. Yeah, like how would we even do that? And so when we approach uh, stories like in the Bible, like Lot giving his daughters to the community to have sex with instead of these guests in his home. For a, for a hospitality culture, they would go, oh, absolutely, that's exactly what you would do. For us in the Western world, we're like, oh, for sure, no. <laughs> um, no way would I do that. Those guys can go out and suffer before my own family does. Why? Because we protect ourselves yeah. first. Um, wow. A uh, lot of good stuff so far. Um, what are some some ways that this actually becomes useful when we study the Bible in context? What, what are some of the things it does for us as we study the Bible? Yeah, I want to um, preface this by saying we're not trying to tell you that everything that you've learned beforehand was wrong. Mm. That, that's, a again, stepping into the Western mind. If what you're saying is right, then everything else that I... Yeah. All those all, other pastors were idiots. Yeah. All the other pastors of the world have been wrong, and I alone hold the truth. That is not what we're saying. Um, it doesn't mean that what we learned beforehand is wrong. What it does is give new angles, new depth, new color, mm-hmm. new beauty to what we're doing. And so, first of all, it helps us deepen our understanding and provide layers and beauty to what we're learning. Um, and that that's so profound. Like, for example, Luke 15, um, we have the three stories, parable of lost sheep, parable of lost coin, parable of lost son that Jesus tells. The, the whole impetus for that, um, those three stories, is that Jesus is having meals with sinners, and, and the religious leaders are having a problem with it. Well, what does that mean, he's having meals? Well, in the, in the Eastern world, um, this meal that you have with people who are um, separated from you in some ways called sulha, it's the peace meal. The fact that Jesus is making peace with sinners... Um, that's the the religious establishment wouldn't even touch them. They wouldn't talk to them or they would claim themselves unclean. And Jesus is having a meal with them, which in the Eastern world is a big deal. You don't have a meal with somebody you're in disagreement with mm. because of that whole hospitality piece. I don't have hospitality for you. I'm not even letting you in my home. Jesus is making peace with sinners and the ones that have a problem with it are the ones that should have been fighting hardest for it. Once we understand culture, once we understand context, that those three stories take on a whole new meaning. And that landing at the end of that whole teaching section on the oldest son and his misunderstanding means a whole lot more mm-hmm. when we get there. 
That's good. Um, the second piece is it it helps make sense of passages that don't make sense. Um, okay, example of that. In Matthew 22, we have Jesus tell the parable of the great banquet. And um, it, the I'm going to paraphrase the story and I'm going to butcher it, so forgive me. <laughs> it's just like being in home group. <laughs> so uh, the, this king uh, creates a banquet for his son and uh, for a wedding banquet. He invites a whole bunch of people to come in and, and no one is uh, that's been invited can come. They all have excuses about why they can't be there, even though it's a huge honor to come under the hospitality of the king. They're all too busy and they're buying fields and testing oxen and blah, 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 blah. Um, so the king says, go out into the highways and byways and find all of these different people that weren't invited. Just bring in everyone. Bring in um, your, your tired, your wounded, your huddled masses. Bring them in, um, and we are going to uh, have a party with those people because the people that I invited are not willing to come into my party. Then there's this weird thing that happens where the king comes into the party and he sees somebody that doesn't have on their wedding clothes. And he says, why don't you have on your wedding clothes? And then he says, take this wretch and throw him into outer darkness. <laughs> wait, wait. So the obvious takeaway is that fashion is very important to yeah, us as believers. Yeah, and especially if you don't have any clothes, yeah. uh, if you're poor <laughs> and you like, like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense at all until we understand that culturally the wedding clothes are provided by the king, by the host. And that starts to change everything that like you, everything has been provided for you. Everything that you need is there and you choose not to take advantage of it, but you want to take the blessing mm. away from it. Like that changes everything. Yeah. that Because it feels really un-Jesus-y, which is a, <laughs> a word I made up, that it feels really un-Jesus-y unless we understand the context of all of that. That's good. Well, what's uh, kind of another example of a way that this uh, helps us understand or... Find, find value. Yeah, so it gives depths to things that we would otherwise miss. For example, uh, in Luke chapter 2, and this is a passage that a lot of us will read here in the coming weeks, uh, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that the whole world should be taxed. Uh, it's just a sentence to us, but for Luke, it is loaded with meaning, <clears throat> and it has all kinds of assumptions in it that Luke assumes that his readers already know. Such as? Uh, so, uh, for example, the way that a census is taken is brutal. Um, they're a bloodbath. They are, um, the census is taken for the purpose of being taxed. So when I come to register, I'm registering and letting you know my household income. Okay, if I'm a Jew and I'm, I believe, and this is all rooted in a lot of historical stuff, but I believe that the reason why God sent us to Babylon is because we sinned. And our deliverance came because we chose, to, again, to be righteous. And so when they came back from Babylon, the ethos of the Jewish people was, we will be righteous. So that's Which is why you read the Old Testament, there are these moral reprobates. Like, they can't hold it together. They keep messing things up. You come <laughs> back to the time of Jesus, they are self-righteous, they are separatist, they are legalistic. Mm -hmm. That's all in that transition of, we believe we went to Babylon because we sinned. Mm. Um, so, uh, if you're this person who doesn't want to go back into captivity, and yet when you're paying taxes to Caesar, you're paying taxes to the person that you believe is the instrument of Satan. Satan is the dragon. Anyone who serves the dragon is called the beast, and that ought to heavily influence a few passages that we kick around a lot. Yeah. But um, 
Are you going to willingly give taxes to the one who is holding God's people oppressive, oppressed, oppressed? Of, of course not. In fact, um, a gut, there's a, a in in a town called Priene, which is in modern day Turkey, biblical Asia Minor. Um, there were some tablets found, and when I when I take tours to Turkey, um, I take people there to to the place where these were found. So here's the conversation when. When Augustus was made Caesar, um, the this group in in the province of Asia, which is a little confusing, the whole area was called Asia Minor. The western section of it was called Asia, which mm. is backwards <laughs> to the way that we think it should be. But this guy came to the um, assembly of the the government that kind of controlled Asia. His name was Paulus Fabi- Fabius Maximus, which is an awesome name. And he, he made a proposal that the, that the provincial calendar, the calendar for the province of Asia, should be reorganized so that the, the new year began on the 23rd of September, because that was the birthday of Augustus. And so the, that's the first tablet. The first tablet records his proposal to the, the assembly of the province of Asia. The second tablet records his response, and here's what it is. Here's what it reads. Since providence has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, the same word used to describe Mm -hmm. Jesus as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, which is called an epiphany, that's the Greek word, excelled even our expectations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, which is the Greek word euangelion, which we translate good news or gospel, mm. for the world has that came by reason of him. And this is not the only place in a description like this has been found about Augustus. It's also been found in a place called Epimea, Dorelium, Eumenia, and Maonia. Uh, these are all different cities where these inscriptions have been found. But this is the when we when we read this one sentence in the days of Caesar Augustus, all this stuff is loaded that there's already a gospel. That the gospel is that Augustus is the son of God and he is God in man form, that he came as the prince of peace. He came to be the savior of the world. He came for the remission of sins and to bring peace on this earth. All these claims are exactly the same claims that the writers of the Bible are making about Jesus. And it's all loaded into one sentence in the days of Caesar Augustus. Like all (laughs) these assumptions that we just read over, all this loaded political intrigue is there. And we just gloss over it because yep. we don't know the context. Yep. Hey, Caesar Augustus. Cool. Yeah. All oh, right. cool. cool. That, that yeah, let's us, get to the good part. Let's that get to helps Jesus. us date the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's bigger than that. All right. Well, I hate to do this to you, but we're going to go ahead and break there. Uh, we end up having a lot more content than we anticipated. And uh, we figured we'd go and break things up into two episodes instead of just the one. So why don't you go ahead and join us next week as we jump back in on this topic right here on A Better Conversation.